Hello, my name is Marta and you are listening to 15 Days in a Podcast. Today is the fifth day of national lockdown here in Spain and I wanted to talk more about a subject I briefly touched upon in another episode. The subject of how the COVID-19 outbreak is affecting other countries in other regions in the planet, such as Latin America, is something that I've been thinking about for the past few days. And far from finding enough information about it, I thought it would be very interesting to share with everyone the perspective of one of my good friends, Camila, who is originally from Mexico and has much more knowledge than I do myself about the subject. I hope you're safe. I hope you're healthy. And again, I sure hope you're staying at home while you listen to this podcast. Sit down and enjoy. So I'd like to start this episode by focusing on an article that was published by the New York Times just yesterday, the title of which is Latin America can become the biggest victim of COVID-19. First of all, uh, thank you again to my friend Camila, who was the one to share it with me. I was happy to find an article focusing on this region and not speaking so much about uh, the outbreak in Europe, because it's not something I've seen in the past week. And I think it's sort of natural that I haven't seen it, just because, first of all, I'm based in Spain. Most of the news I get are about Spain, France, Italy, or the US. And secondly, the outbreak hadn't hit Latin America, among other regions, as hard as it had hit my own Uh, hometown in, in, in country and at large Europe. So Latin America, as I've just said, is one of the regions least affected by COVID-19. The first case in Latin America was detected on the 26th of February in Brazil. And the first death was detected in, was actually uh, confirmed in Argentina on March 7th. Now, the pandemic has been slow to reach the region, but it's getting there. And to illustrate it a little bit better before you, we jump to the conversation I had with Camila earlier today, I wanted to focus on two different countries. One of them is Brazil and the other one is Mexico. So the Brazilian Ministry of Health has just announced the start of the community transmission phase of the virus, which basically means um, that it's possible to now have cases of local contagion among people who have not actually traveled to risk areas in the foreign countries or have been in contact with people from those areas directly. This means that simply isolating the region and those infected will not be enough and the cases of COVID-19 in the area will continue to grow. And it is worrying to me because the region is not prepared for the spread of the virus. If us ourselves in Spain and Italy and France and many other countries are not prepared, although we have a functioning, fully functioning A healthcare system that's public, how does it work in countries on the one hand that, it, that, does, that don't have the public healthcare system and in other countries that have it but are not where it is not fully functioning. Um, so there are more than 4,000 deaths confirmed from COVID-19 in Europe and over 80,000 cases, right? Um, to, to successfully combat a pandemic like this one, it's important to do two things. On the one hand, invest. It's a matter of investment, but it's not only a matter of investment. It's also um, a matter about aggressively and effectively redirecting the existing resources. And this obviously, the success of it depends from country to country. So in Latin America, unlike the US, um, many countries have health as a social right guaranteed by the Constitution. And in many other ones, it's a matter of the state. Um, so it's guaranteed by the Constitution in, in countries like Mexico, and it's also in Peru, for instance. Um, 
in other countries like Brazil and Venezuela, it's everyone's right and it's a duty of the state, like I was saying. Um, but it's overall, it's more directed to the public sphere and it's more guaranteed by a public government and state than it is in other countries like in the US. But that doesn't mean it's efficient, right? Um, when we look at the proportion of resources that these countries allocate to public health, we realize that they're pretty far from other countries that also intend to provide health for everyone. So to just illustrate it a little bit with numbers, Mexico dedicates 3% of its GDP to public health, while Italy, which as we know has been one of the most, if not the most affected country to date, with the highest number of deaths, dedicates more than double this number, so 6.7% versus the 3% that I just mentioned that Mexico dedicates. In the case of Brazil, Say that, for instance, 20% of the population were infected, which according to healthcare professionals, it's a reasonable estimate. Well, if this was the case, the estimated cost of hospitalizing all these patients would be equivalent to 98% of the total cost of hospital production covered by the government in all of 2019. That means that just the resources that are in place right now to look after people, the ones that were used uh, last year in public healthcare in Brazil, would be enough to cover the hospitalization of 20% of the population. That means that everyone else that needs to go to the hospital for whatever reason, which as you can understand, it's a whole lot number of people, um, they won't be able to do that. So this is just bringing us to a space and to a position in which governments in several countries in Latin America, including the case of Brazil, may have to start choosing who they offer healthcare to and who they can look after. Can they provide basic healthcare to patients of COVID-19? And does that mean that they will have to pay less attention to other patients that need nonetheless to go to the hospital? It's, it's a matter worth thinking about, I think. So even before the virus outbreak, projections indicated very low economic growth for the region in the next two years. This, make it, this makes it unlikely that more will be invested in health immediately uh, and even in the medium term. So especially in public health, we're not sure how much investment will be able to come from the public government. Um, and it is a significant part of the population that if they're infected, health systems will have to choose, as I said, before, between caring for them and, ca and caring for carriers of all other diseases. And this seems like a pretty dramatic scenario to me. And it would definitely make Latin America one of the biggest victims of coronavirus, like the title that I was talking about before refers to. So how can the situation be improved? There are two strategies. I don't know which one is more is less is less realistic. Um, on the one hand, there they should most urgently invest massively in measures to contain the spread of the epidemic. But is it too late to do so? Um, the virus is already in many of these regions, um, including Mexico, like Camila will speak in a bit. Um, how realistic is it to assume that they are going to start investing massively in measures to contain the spread of the epidemic in preventive measures? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. I, I'm just saying it seems rather idealistic to me. Um, and then on the other hand, in the long term, they should invest more and better in their health systems to guarantee access for all citizens to medical care and ensure that the region is not unprotected in the face of new epidemics or any illnesses that may come its way. However, again, that's very easy to say, hard 
and difficult to do, as we know from not only cases of countries in Latin America, but all around the world. Um, this is food for thought, and I think it's food for thought not only for Latin America, but also any and all regions around the world that have been aggressively impacted by this outbreak. And I think that's something that I've been talking about with my friends lately these past days is this just shows something. I mean, this, this pandemic shows many things, but one of the things that I'd like to highlight is that no one was prepared to proactively and efficiently uh, answer or have a reaction to a global pandemic, a global health emergency. And that's scary to think. So I'm sorry, those are not good news. I've not been sharing good news with you in the past week. I hope the trend starts changing very soon. But um, let's switch to my conversation with Camila and I hope you will enjoy it. Hi everyone, so as promised today, we have my friend Camila from Mexico, although she's in Switzerland right now. Hello Camila. Hi there Marta, nice to talk to you. Yeah, so long we didn't talk. I'm glad we reconnected and I'm glad you're here with us today to tell us a little bit about your experience. Of course. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, about yourself, what your situation is right now? Yes, sure. Uh, so thanks again for inviting me. I just wanted actually to start by saying that Uh, I've been listening to your podcast and I met Marta in Italy, so um, I went to high school with her and we've been friends since then. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Mexico, but I moved yeah, to Italy when I was 16 and I've been moving around um, first to the US uh, and now to Switzerland. I, um, I have a background in political science and now I'm doing my master's in human rights and I'm currently here uh, in Geneva. Perfect. Um, so you are living in Switzerland. When did you move to Switzerland? I moved to Switzerland last um, last fall. I think it was around August. Yeah, it was yeah. in August to start my master's program. And it's a master's program that lasts for a year. So in theory, I should be here uh, until August of this year. But your family is staying in Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah. So all my family since I first moved when I was 16 uh, stayed in Mexico. They all live in Mexico City. Uh, and some of them live in, live in other parts of Mexico. And how how's your communication with them been during this time? Are you in constant touch with them? Uh, do you speak on a daily basis? Yeah, so I mean, in general, before even the coronavirus crisis began, I've been in communication with my mom every single day. It's just a cultural thing. I think it's probably similar in Spain, so we do talk every day. Right. Um, I think something that's been interesting is that Uh, of course, the, um, the stage at which uh, the coronavirus crisis is happening in Europe is much more advanced uh, in comparison to Latin America. So um, here we are in Switzerland, we are in, lock in lockdown just as in Spain and in France, whereas in Latin America, they are just starting to have the first cases. So trying to like communicate the seriousness of the events to them, right. uh, it's like... I, they understand, but it's uh, it's different when you don't have it like next to you. Of course. So I think that's very interesting that you are based here in Europe, but you know the situation so well as well in Mexico, um, where you're from. So how have you been living through the situation while in Switzerland? And how does that compare to how your family is living it in Mexico? Uh -huh, yes. So similar. I think we actually went uh, onto lockdown the same, the same day that Spain Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, well, it started on, the, on Friday or maybe Monday. 
I don't know, you, right. you lose count of the dates pretty quickly. But it's been going on for a while and generally like more um, like harsher measures have been going on for a while. Like I haven't had classes for a long time. Now only the grocery store and the pharmacies are open. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty, pretty restricted. Uh, in Mexico, in contrast, there's only a uh, hundred cases at the moment and there's a uh, 120 million people in Mexico, right? So here in Switzerland, right. we have 4,000 cases uh, and the population is 9 million. In Mexico, there are 100 cases uh, and the population is 160 million. So it's not, it's not even comparable. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they are starting to take some measures. For example, classes are, are canceled now. In most of Latin America, actually, they have been canceled, even though the case count is very low. When did uh, when was the first case? And maybe you don't know exactly when it was, but when was the first case of coronavirus confirmed in Mexico? And was that when we were already quote unquote in crisis here, um, and we had already been in lockdown? Had it been before? Yeah, I don't have the exact date for when it happened, but I it was a couple weeks ago, and yeah. uh, all the cases right now are in fact from people that had just returned from Europe, uh, right. and they are all in quarantine. So. Uh, the Mexican government calls it stage one. So it means that all people that have it came from outside. There are no person to person, um, you know, transmission of the illness. Uh, right. So, yeah, so it's it's recent, but it's developing for sure. And what are the measures that the Mexican government is putting in place uh, to sort of help alleviate the effects that this potential crisis may have? Of course. So I think uh, it's important to know that the context in Mexico and much in much of Latin America, it's very different to the one here in Europe. Right. Uh, I think, um, you know, something that is very shocking for me is that uh, both Italy and Spain have... Uh, incredibly good healthcare systems and right. they are still running at full capacity and they are still going through a crisis and right. in contrast in Latin America our health systems they are generally public uh, and there's also of course private hospitals but um, it is a fact that they are always running on capacity whether there's a crisis or not so for people to access uh, healthcare it's difficult on a general basis without a crisis. So that's definitely a problem. And that's uh, why in most of the region, they are taking already um, harsh measures to prevent the crisis, because if it were to intensify, we would not have the same capacity to respond as they have it here in Europe. Uh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And what are some of those measures that you mentioned mm -hmm. that are getting very intense in certain regions? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, of course, uh, the responses vary country to country, but in general, uh, commercial flights are getting cancelled, all from Europe. Just the, the ones that remain available are for people that are getting back into their home countries. Uh, right. Schools have been cancelled, uh, in Mexico at least, for the next month. And uh, people are encouraged to home office. Of course, uh, it's much more complicated there because of uh, the economic situation. I can talk about that later. Uh, but yeah, people are encouraged to home office. Then uh, there is like a wide um, kind of campaign, like education campaign about the virus. And mm -hmm. 
yes, I guess you can call the focus or like the approach to the situation as uh, purely preventive at, at this stage. But the thing is that uh, given the, the healthcare capacity that we have, it has to stay away. We cannot afford to, to get into a stage to, to, as, as, to get to a stage that is similar to the one that is happening in Spain, uh, Italy, or, or Switzerland for that matter. Right. Um, do you think people, and again, I think you mentioned this already, that people don't live or don't appreciate or can measure truly the effect that something like this may happen in their country unless it actually gets to the country. Um, do you see people taking advantage of the measures and advice that the government is giving or do you see people having a more responsive sort of um, outlook in the situation? Yeah, so I think uh, there's a couple of things like uh, many of my friends are definitely taking advantage of the home office uh, opportunity uh, and they are being very serious about it and actually uh, many people have criticized the, the government for not taking stricter measures At the same time, though, uh, a lot of people are talking about the impossibility of going into quarantine, given right. the fact that the majority of people in Mexico, that's over uh, 57%, work in the informal economy. So they don't have a formal contract. They don't have like job right. security. If they don't go out to the streets to work, they just don't earn money, you know? Right, so, right. Um, So yeah, that's that's complicated, and that just makes the situation uh, much more difficult. I was thinking about your podcast the other day about you know the situation of refugees, the situation of homeless people, the situation of people that live with you know their abuser uh, at home. Yeah. All of those things are very real in Europe and are real problems, but in Latin America they are just magnified. You know, they affect right, right. A, a very large portion of the population. So you know, there's there's um, They are even saying that the ability to take to, to, to be on quarantine is a privilege. And to be frank, I think for many people in Latin America, it is. So it's a very different situation to the one here in Europe. And it is honestly super scary to think, you know, it's scary to think about the situation itself, no matter what country you're in. But when you put it into perspective and you say so many people rely on an informal sort of economy where they work and what they earn on that very day they used to live, mm -hmm. that is then you can truly start understanding sort of what the impact of this crisis, if it came to the terms of, or the rate at which it's come in some countries in Europe, it could be very scary uh, for a country like Mexico, for many countries in Latin America in general. Um, do you, and, I, and I know this is not very related right now, but I know both of us have younger siblings, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the education bit. How is your sister taking advantage of, of remote education? Is that even being offered to her? What is sort of the mm. educational response yes. that schools are having? So they, um, it's not like here that classes are uh, canceled, but they continue online. They are simply canceled. So th that right. month is going to go, yeah, it's gone. It's, she's going to lose that month of education simply because there is no, there isn't the technology to like go virtual. And even many people don't have access to uh, a computer at their homes. Most people have access to, to internet, but only on their phones. So it's not, it's not like you can take the classes on your phone. It's harder, you know? So, um, so yeah, it's, I mean, she's okay, but of course she's going to lose that month of classes. It's unlikely that they will, you know, um, 
that people will lose that entire year academically. Yeah. But but yeah, and still I'm I'm talking about you know Mexico City, which is the wealthiest um, part of the country and actually right. of the region. Uh, so people there have much uh, like people can actually home office a lot there. But it's really not yeah. the case for the rest of the country. Like there are many parts in Mexico where there are not even hospitals, you know. So like, right, right, and right. where the state presence is actually non-existent. So right. if you know, uh, on on the one hand, it would it is unlikely that communities that are so remote would get infected. But if they did, right. the it would be completely devastating. Right, right. Um, and I know you're having daily conversations with your family about this matter. How did they perceive your situation here in Europe? And what are some things you've, what are some pieces of advice you've shared with them that they have started practicing, if any? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing I did want to mention is that we, uh, we actually had a, an epidemic in Mexico City 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And Yeah, it was the H1N1. I think it was also a global pandemic. I I'm, I cannot remember. I was really young. But we, uh, yeah, it was a similar situation in which many people went into quarantine. Um, schools closed down. So there's, you know, there's like a public memory of that within Mexico City. So right. people remember what it's like. Uh, people have uh, you know, like the culture of the hand sanitizer has been there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So kind of Many people in the city like kind of understand the seriousness, the seriousness of the situation, and that's why they were demanding the government from very early that they would take uh, harsher measures. But then the government was like, "We can't because that's gonna really disrupt the economy." You know, like it's right. a real concern. We cannot do this. We, it's we cannot do this at such early stage. So yeah. So with my mom, I'm just like trying to communicate. To her, the seriousness of the issue, I think she understands it, but she's, she sometimes pushes back. She's like, you know, I cannot do home office, you know? Right, of course. I cannot right. do it. Like, it's simply actually my profession is not suited for right. it. She's an engineer, so she has to go to, like, construction sites and stuff like this. Right. So she's like, I just can't, you know? And I, for example, suggested that they went to my, um, my family's home uh, in another state in Mexico. Uh, and she's yeah. like, no, we can't because I have to stay here to work. So, yeah, right. it's like a back and forth, and there's only so much I can input given the, the different context that there is there. Right. Do you think it's, like, even in the radar for people to start practicing social distancing? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, yeah. And then it's also already a policy that has been implemented by the government. Okay. That's good. Uh, they call it, um, they don't call it social distancing, they call it, like, safe distancing. <laughs> Sana distancia. I like that. Uh, and, yeah, and people are doing it to the extent to which they can, um, but, but it's harder. And I think something that's been positive is that from the very, very stages of this crisis, people realize the, you know, disproportionate effects that this was going to have on low-income workers. So, right. uh, for example, domestic workers, if they are, yeah, if they are quarantined, they cannot work at the homes and Right. And then, you know, like there was a huge campaign to like remind people to continue to pay their domestic workers, even if they were not going home. Um, right. Because, again, they belong to the informal economy, so they don't have a contract that would provide them with immunity or, or stuff like this. So, yeah, people are taking these kind of um, civil society initiatives, but it's complicated for sure. Well, I don't know if there is anything else you want to share with 
us about your relationship with your family in Mexico, your situation in Switzerland? Uh, no, I think I think it's just um, it's just a reminder of you know I think I read an article that um, the headline was like the virus is the same, the country's ability to respond is different. So this is this is a, a developing situation, and this is something that we are gonna see you know evolve, and hopefully uh, the preventive measures that Latin American countries are taking are effective, and we do not get to the situation that is happening here in Europe. I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be that way, but at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, worrying information. But yeah, I just right. like, like you did the other day on your podcast, I do want to remind people uh, or, or, yeah, to remind people to think about those uh, that don't have the ability to stay home and work comfortably from home and, you know, that have to worry about their ability to, you know, eat daily on a daily basis. So it is really rough what we are going through right now here in Switzerland, but I will not complain about it. I, you know, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was so eye opening. And also it's just so different to hear from you, somebody that has such close contact with people in Mexico, you, you're Mexican yourself and, sort of hear you put things into perspective. I think it will be very, very helpful for everybody listening today to sort of understand that the situation, the virus, again, as you said, is the same, but the situation in every country and ability to respond is very different. Um, thank so you. Thank you so much, Camila, for speaking with us today. Um, you know, we'll see how things evolve, but I'll be happy to have another conversation where, like, farther down the line when things evolve a little bit, hopefully in a positive way, and we can talk about how preventive measures in Latin America have helped the situation uh, not get as bad as, as it did here in Europe. Of course. Oh, I do have something else to say. I forgot. Please I forgot. I forgot. Yes. Um, sorry, I ju it just came back to my mind. And I'm, oh, honestly, no, you're good. <laughs> I'm honestly really thankful to be talking to you about this. Um, something that's been going on in other countries is not the case in Mexico, but it happened in Honduras and also in Peru. Yeah. is that the governments uh, deploy the army uh, and they establish curfews. And, you know, like, if you're here, here in Europe, that doesn't concern you because you think, like, right. this is but in other exactly, this is, a, like, a health crisis. It makes sense that the army is helping out. But uh, from a Latin American experience, every time we see the army deploy is, is something that is worrying just because we have yeah. a long-standing history of military repression. So, yeah. uh, and it's very easy, you know, to, like, um, re like, yeah, enact repressive measures in the context of a health crisis. So uh, right. that's something that I just want also um, for people to keep in mind, you know, that, um, yeah, that definitely the situation changes. And that's very, that's very helpful to hear because that's not even something that people would even think about because we have the, the context of perhaps seeing the military in Europe, I see the military on the street and I'm almost grateful in a way like that they are on the street. Like it happened to me as well when I was living in Paris after the attacks of mm -hmm. November 13th of 2015. And I kept seeing people in, in like from the military on the streets and I was like, oh, this isn't bad. But then the reaction by other people from other uh, backgrounds and contexts, of course, is not the same one because the history you have and the relationship with you have with the military is different country to country. Exactly, exactly. So I think... I don't remember whether it was Honduras or El Salvador that they already deployed the military and established a curfew, and they actually have zero cases. And some people right. were applauding them for that, but I'm just 
yeah, I'm just more concerned because, you know, you have to see it from a human rights perspective and, and from a historic perspective of, of how politics work in the specific context. So, so yeah, it's just an invitation for people to, like, uh, consider how this crisis plays different in different political contexts. No, and I think you, that was, that was great that you added that because that's not something people usually think about so thank you for for adding yes and i will stop there i'm sorry i kept on extending it no please any more information you have or you ever want to share with us you just tell me and you know it's very easy to create these podcast episodes so (laughs) thankfully i'll be able to speak with you anytime you want to okay thank you so much for the invitation again thank you so much thank you for being here with us um and to everybody else listening As you know, stay home, stay safe, and come back tomorrow for another episode of 15 Days in a Podcast. Bye!